Jesus, we thank you. We praise you for being our Savior, for dying on the cross for our sins. There is no way to the Father except through that sacrifice that we look forward to, we look at in faith, that we believe you were our substitutes, and we, we claim that right now, this morning. We believe it. We receive it. Jesus, it's all about you. And so, Lord, we pray that you would give us wisdom and understanding in this book, and it would be truly something that would blow our minds and bless our hearts, uh, something that that would not be intimidating, but God would be uh, used to create an urgency in our lives to serve you. Uh, Lord, as Jed has exemplified for us, to serve you with all our heart, all our mind, and all our strength. God, we thank you for the people you've brought into our, our, our church today, and we pray that it would really bless them, and, and that, Lord, their hearts would, be, would feel loved and would feel the treasure that they are in your eyes. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. So what we're going to do today is we're going to study the entire book of Revelation, all 22 chapters, in one less than an hour. Yes, what? We are going to do that. We are going to do it. I'm going to succeed. And if you get tired, suck it up. We're going to make it through it, all right? We're going to do this. And I wanted to do this because the book of Revelation is so vital and central for us to be able to understand. And so many people are just wigged out by it. They, they are confused. They are, they are intimidated. And they, they look at it, and they're reading, they, they're reading, and they're seeing a woman that rides a beast with ten horns and eyeballs, and they don't want to drink of the cup of the wrath of the wine of the indignation of the woman that rides a ten-horned beast, and they have no idea what's going on. And it's kind of intimidating. And so they think, you know what? I can get Matthew where it just tells me about Jesus. I can get Mark where it tells me more about Jesus. I can get the letters of Paul because he's just teaching me in plain language. But the book of Revelation is written in, 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 uh, in a code almost. And they feel like, I can't crack that code. I don't understand what all these things mean. And it shouldn't be that way because the Revelation is actually not a hard book to understand. And by the end of today, you will say the same thing. I know you all just said, yeah, right. You're kidding me because the book of Revelation is crazy. But I will guarantee you by the end of today, you will not think that way. You will believe in your heart, I hope, if I do my job, that the book of Revelation is not a hard book to understand. There are a lot of things that you guys will be able to dig into on your own in your own time. And what I want to do today is I want to open, I want to unlock the door for you. And you guys can, can, can pull the handle and open it up for yourselves as we study. Next week, we're going to get into studying the book of Genesis. And we're going to start that book and we're going to go verse by verse through the book of Genesis. It's going to take a couple weeks. But that was a joke. And you can laugh at that one. Uh, it's going to take a little while. Okay, we get through verse 1 next week. But the book of Revelation, I'm going to open the door. I'm going to unlock the door so that you guys can take the time and not be afraid of it. So I want to, I want to accomplish two things today. I want to give you the freedom to read this book with confidence and with romance. Confidence and romance. Confidence knowing that you can and should understand the heart of this book. And romance this book is like the last heartsick promise of a lover displaced. Jesus said in John 14, which I'm going to actually open up and read a little bit to you. He said, I will come to you. I will not leave you orphans. Do you remember that? I'm going to read to you the context just so you remember. John 14, he's just about to die on the cross and he says, Let not your hearts be troubled. For you believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. So Jesus is saying, I got to go. I got to go, guys. I got something to accomplish on the cross right now. And then I have a really big job of preparing heaven for you. And verse 3, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to me, to myself that where I am, you may also be. He's just, his heart is just aching for them. He just wants to be with them. And he's going to send the Holy Spirit. It's going to be great. But he just loves the relationship he has with you and me. And he's like, I'm going to come back. Don't forget about me. I'm going to come back. And he says, and where I go, you know, and the way you know. 
And Thomas, our, our, our brother who tells us so much, he says to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, and how can we know the way? I love Thomas because he just doesn't get it because he's been following Jesus for three years, just walking with him, and Jesus is like, that's it. That's what, I, what the way is. He says, I am the way, Thomas. I am the truth, and I am the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And so Jesus says, Thomas, it's been, you've just been walking with me. Let's continue to walk together, but it's going to be a little different. I'm not going to be here in my body. I'm going to be here in the Holy Spirit. But soon, eventually, I will come back. I will come back. I will not leave you orphans. And so the, his heart is just revealed to us there in John chapter 14. So turn back to the book of Revelation, and we're going to get started. This is the only book that can answer the question, how is Jesus going to fix everything that's wrong in the world? There's a lot wrong in this world, isn't there? I read the news, I look at what's happening in Iraq, I see him shooting people right in the head, I see him selling little kids as sex slaves, and that's just what we see in the news. That doesn't even count what's happening in all the basements and dungeons of Europe and the whole world, even in our city. There is evil just all corrupting this world. It's everywhere. And it needs to be fixed. This is not the way God intends it to be. And he is going to fix it. And this book will tell us how. It tells us how the story is going to end. So, let's get into it. The book of Revelation, the of Revelation of Jesus Christ is not a hard book to understand. The wild imagery that we're going to see, or that you will see as you study it, is clearly defined for us in the Old Testament. See, he doesn't just pick dragons for the sake of dragons. He doesn't just pick fig trees and trees of life and rivers and streets and cities. He doesn't just pick these things out of his imagination, John, our brother who wrote this. He picks things. He has shown things that were already defined for us in the Old Testament. So when you get to something in the book of Revelation that you don't understand, what you need to do is you need to go and figure out where that subject or that image was mentioned previously in the Bible. And that will help us to understand. So the book of Revelation kind of is like the cap on the top of the mountain of the Bible. You have all these things in here and different characteristics and different images. And the book of Revelation ties them all together to show us how it all represents Jesus Christ. How it all has to do with him and his ministry on the earth. It also has a lot to do to be able to understand the book and some of its intricacies. We need to study the book of Daniel as well. The book of Daniel in the Old Testament is like the book of the Revelation, Revelation in the New Testament. They go together hand in hand. And there's a lot of things that you'll see when you study Daniel, especially the second half of the book. And the last thing that we need to really get here to understand this book is that it's supposed to make things clear, not bring confusion. It's a revelation. That's its very name. It's not the confusion of Jesus Christ. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's supposed to make things clear. And so in our hearts, that should be what we get out of it. And the way that we understand this book, the very key is we got to get the timeline and timetable of what it's talking about, how it's written, and that comes to us in the divine outline. All right, so everyone look in your Bible, look at chapter 1, verse 19. We start in verse 19, and we find there the divine outline. Look at your neighbor and said, I found the divine outline. Right there. It's right there. It's really easy, and it says, write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which shall take place after this. So Jesus gives us the outline to the whole book right there. It's supposed to be divided into three sections. The first section is the past. The second section is the present. And the third section would be the future. And just so happens, John listened. And when he wrote the book of Revelation, he wrote in that order. The past, the present, and the future. And the past is really easy to see. It's chapter 1. Chapter 1 is the past. And what does chapter 1 show? It shows Jesus risen and in heaven. That's what's happening in chapter 1. Then we get to chapters 2 and 3. And in chapters 2 and 3, we have the present. And that is the seven letters to the seven churches. You have the church living in the world. Do we have the church today in, in the world? Yes, we live here. 
We are how God is ministering to the world is through the church. Every believer in Jesus Christ is his church. And so that's how God is working in the world right now. But there's coming a day soon in the future where that is going to change. The church age will end. The rapture will happen. The church will be caught up into heaven and a different time will be ushered in. And that time begins in chapter 4, verse 1. And after that time, from chapter 4 on, is all future. And it describes a couple periods of future. From chapters 6 through 19, you have the Great Tribulation. The seven years immediately following the church going up into heaven, when God is dealing with the nation of Israel, when God is is working with them and bringing them back to a place where they will accept Jesus Christ as their Messiah, which they will do at the end, but not without great tribulation. And then, after the great tribulation, you have another period of time called the millennium, which is a thousand years where Jesus rules in Jerusalem, this very world. And everything is restored back to the way it was in the Garden of Eden. Everything is wonderful. Everything is perfect. It's the fulfillment of all kinds of prophecies in the Old Testament. It's that period of time. Then that thousand years ends. There's a final rebellion, and we'll talk about that in a minute. And then at, after that is a new heaven and a new earth. And so it flows very clean, very nicely for us. It just goes like this. But as you read it and as you get into the, the very close of it and you're reading the stories and you're reading the images, it can get confusing. So we always need to back up. You, you've heard the phrase, you can't see the forest for the trees, right? Well, that's what we need to do with the book of Revelation. We need to back up. And we need to remember the divine outline. You can underline it. You can start. I give you permission to write in your Bible. That's why phones don't always work. But you can still highlight in those Bible programs. Anyway, write the things which you have seen, the things which are. So I want to explain a little bit about chapter 1. The things which were in the past, that Jesus has risen and in heaven. He's no longer the humble man dying on the cross, but he's glorious and wonderful. And here's the description that we're given to him, and I'll read it out of the message paraphrase uh, just to give us something new to think about. He says, I saw a gold menorah with seven branches, and in the center the Son of Man, in a robe and a gold breastplate, hair a blizzard of white, eyes pouring fire blaze, both feet furnace fired bronze. His voice was a cataract, which I had to look that up, it means a waterfall. Uh, his right hand holding seven stars, and his mouth a sharp biting sword, and his face a pedigree sun. So Jesus is no longer that, that man on the cross or the, the baby Jesus that all the actors pray to in the movies. He, he's a mighty and glorious, and he's seen as the God of the universe, now living in heaven. And that's where Jesus truly is right now. So then we get to chapters 2. And three, which we have seven letters to seven churches. And this is a truly amazing part of the book of Revelation. It's so full of application to us because this is the age that we live in right now. It's, the, it's when the church is on earth. It's called the church age. And there's four applications that you need to know and you need to look at when you're studying these seven letters. And I'm going to give you all four of them, okay? Number one, you have the historical application. You have the, those seven letters that were written to seven actual churches that lived in those actual cities that were dealing with actual problems, all in that first century church, all in that time period. So that's the historical, and there's great applications, there's great lessons to be learned when you study that. Secondly, there's a personal application. What is he saying to me with these seven letters? When he says, you have left your first love, and I want you to return and do those first works. He's not just talking to that church. He's talking to you, and he's talking to me. And there's so many lessons in, chap in chapters 2 and 3 in those seven letters of Jesus' words directly to us. So we got to remember that personal application. Then there's what's called the ecclesiastical application. That is, what lessons is there for our church, White Flag Calvary, or whatever church you go to? What lessons, what could we learn as a church? How could we do things better? What, how could we be more pure, more devoted to God, more in love with God? It's a very important one as well. We don't want to ever minimize that. Then we get to the fourth one, and this is the one that's kind of exciting. It's kind of cool. This is called the historical or prophetical, the prophetical application. Because these seven, period, these seven letters to the church also represent seven periods in church history, starting with the time of the apostles. 
Then they get to the, well, we'll go on and I'll, I'll show you them here in a second. But it goes in subsequent periods of church history to the type of church that really dominated that, that time, period. And so we have first the church of Ephesus, which was the loveless church. And this was the apostolic church, man. They, they had doctrine. They were doing great with their doctrine. They were, but they became kind of unloving. They became kind of, we're better. Or I don't know exactly what it was, but their heart drifted away from that pure love with Jesus. And this deals with that period of time in the first hundred years of the church. Then we get to the church of Smyrna. Smyrna means crushed, and this church represents for us the persecuted church. They were a city in their historical application. They were a city that was under persecution. But in the time period they rep represent, it begins when Rome began to persecute Christians. And you guys have all seen Gladiator or heard about the stories of the, the Christians being persecuted and thrown to the lions. And what's really interesting, it says in there specifically, you will face 10 days of persecution, which is very intriguing because what we find in history, in the history books, is there was 10 periods where Roman persecution was officially sanctioned against the church. Ten times Rome said, we're killing Christians. And so we have a perfect prophecy in the Bible that that would happen. And so we see Jesus' lessons to the persecuted church there. Then the next church is the church of Pergamos, which is the mixed church. It's the compromising church. And we see in church history, in the year 313, a great mixing, a great compromise happened. And do you guys know what that, what that was? Our, our buddy Constantine came on the scene, and he was the emperor of Rome, and he converted to Christianity. And so what he said is he's like, well, I'm the king, and I'm a Christian now, so now everybody has to be a Christian. The whole empire. Now, can you make everyone a Christian by saying, be a Christian? even if you're the Roman Empire? No, you can't. And so what happened is everyone said, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, and not everyone was. And so you had this great mixing where everyone was going to church, but not everyone loved Jesus. Not everyone was serving Jesus. Not everyone was part of the true church. And this great mixing happened for uh, like a great period of hundreds of years where it was the, ch the state church, okay? That ended at a certain point in time as the, as the Roman uh, Empire kind of collapsed and it fell. It was no longer the dominant form of church. And a new form of church was the dominant form, and that's the church of Thyatira. And in this area of Thyatira, it was a corrupted church. And this speaks to us of the time in history known as the Roman Catholic Church where many people loved Jesus and served him, and Jesus had many good things to say about the church in Thyatira, that they worked hard, that they served and they cared for people, and they, they did a good job with many things, but there was a few things that Jesus said he had a real issue with. He had an issue with um, sexual sin in their, in their midst. They had a problem with that. He had an issue with a certain woman, that he calls Jezebel in this letter, who was taking worship away from his son. And I think you could think in your mind the parallels of why the Roman Catholic Church had a hard time and struggled with some of their issues. And it's amazing that Jesus predicted this. And during their do that dominant time, the, church, the, the Roman Catholic Church would have some of these issues. Now, at the end of this letter we have a really important phrase that I want to bring out to you, and it's the phrase, until I come. He says, I'm not asking that you change, and I'm not, ask, well, I'm not asking that you change everything about your, the way you do church and stuff, but he says, I want you to stay faithful to me, not Jezebel, to me. And if you do that until I come, you're going to be great. Because these last four letters, these last four time periods, they kind of run concurrently all the way until the rapture. You will have different major ones. So the, the, the Roman church lasted until, uh, as you guys probably know, the Reformation. And when the Reformation happens, we get to our next time period of Sardis. But the Roman Catholic Church continues in a state, in a form, all the way up until today, right? And it will continue until the rapture. And I believe that's prophesied with those words, until I come. 
Then you have the church of Sardis, which is the dead church. And this is the Protestant church, the church that came out of the Catholic church. And it's really interesting because the Protestant church really thinks a lot, about it, a lot of good of itself. And it's interesting that Jesus says in this time period, you have a name that you're alive, but you're really dead. And so that the, his problem with this church is they came out of corruption. They came out of that Roman Catholic church, but they didn't come far enough. They just didn't come far enough. He says they still kind of hung on to some of the things. And if, if you were to go into a Lutheran church today, and I, again, that's, again, I'm not calling them heretics or anything like that. I'm just saying if you go into a Lutheran church and you go into a Catholic church, they are nearly the same thing. They're almost exactly the same. They have a couple different views on justification, but really, in practicality, they're almost the same thing still. And it's, it's kind of sad because Jesus says, I wanted you to come all the way out. I wanted to do something new, but you didn't come all the way. And so they have those issues. But then we get to the Church of Philadelphia. And when the 1700s and 1800s came about, there was another massive change in the church. And that, that's when the church became very missional. There was great preachers like Spurgeon and, and all these other guys that were just unbelievable in the way that they could break down Scripture and preach the gospel. And so you had this huge missional movement of churches sending out missionaries all over the world and millions of people getting led to the Lord. And that's that church of Philadelphia. And again, he says, in Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea, until I come, until I come, until I come. I hope that we are part of the Philadelphia church. I really hope. And I believe, honestly, that we are. I believe we're faithful to his word like he says. I believe he says there's a small door open and I want you to serve me where I put you and I, I believe that we are serving God where he's put us right here and I'm excited about it. But there's another church, the church of Laodicea. And this is the lukewarm church, the last days ecumenical church that just says it doesn't matter what you believe, it doesn't matter what doctrine you hold, it doesn't matter if you really think Jesus is the only way or not the only way, and it doesn't matter, we'll, we're going to do what we want to do, we're going to accept everyone and just say you're all going to heaven no matter what you believe or what you do. And that last days church is so sad because Jesus says, I'm on the outside and I'm knocking at the door, and if you open to me, I'll save you. But he's actually not even seen as being in that church. So it's really a, a false church. It's really not just lukewarm, but just dead and, and sad. And so we want to understand that that's the world we live in today. That's the majority of where the church is at today. And we want to understand and have the wisdom of the Lord to say, I'm not going to go there. I'm going to be on fire for Jesus, even if the church is going to call me crazy. Even if the church says, you're radical, you're extreme, say, no, I just love Jesus. That's all I'm about. That's where Jesus wants us. Well, after this, we're going to get to chapter 4 which is the beginning of the future. And so we're going to scurry through the, the future and see what God shows us here. But it's really important that we understand this is the future, and we can do that by the Greek here. In our divine outline, which was in chapter 1, verse what? 19, right. In chapter 1, verse 19, he says, write the things which shall be after this, which is the Greek term metatauta. And in chapter 4, verse 1, it says, and then metatauta, after these things. We get to the future. We see the church is now in heaven. We see so many times in chapters 2 and 3, he says what, what the Spirit says to the church, what the Spirit says to the church, he who has an ear to hear, let the Spirit says to the church. Church is talked to all the time. And guess what? We don't see the church again through the entire tribulation. We never see them talk to. We even have the same phrase, let him, hear, let him who hears hear what the Spirit says, but it does not say to the church. Why? Because in chapter 4, we see the church up in heaven. It's pretty awesome. We see the wicked on earth, and we see a bunch of people that do get saved right after the rapture when they realize, uh-oh, I'm in trouble. And so they decide they do want to follow Jesus at that point, but at that point, they will be killed. In the time of the tribulation, anyone who turns to the Lord will be killed, will be martyred. And beheading is actually the way that they will do it, which I used to think that's never going to happen in our world until 
our news today is filled with constant beheadings, isn't it? It's just interesting that that's the world we live in. So we see this heavenly door where the rapture is alluded to. He says, come up here, which is what we hear in the rapture. And we have John taken up in a vision up to heaven. We have a heavenly throne scene. We have, four and tw- we have 24 elders seen. They represent the church up in heaven. We have four beasts that are up in heaven, and they, represent, or they are mentioned in the book of Ezekiel, and you can cross-reference all these things. You have, then you have the seven-sealed book that the Lamb of God takes. John is, sees the seven sealed, and someone cries out in heaven, who is worthy to loose this seven seals and to take, a, take this scroll and open it? And no one was found until the Lamb, Jesus Christ, stands up and says, I've done it. I have purchased the earth. Because what this seal is, the title deed to the earth. It's the title deed to the earth that Jesus paid for when he died on the cross. And Jesus steps up, and he will do this in the future, and he will say, It is now my time. I'm going to take the title deed and I'm going to open it up and I'm going to take back what is rightfully mine, which is the earth. It is mine. I have bought and paid for it. Adam sold it. When? When he fell to Satan. When Satan deceived him, he owed Satan. God gave the earth to Adam. Adam sold it to Satan. God's going to buy it back. And he did on the cross, and he's going to take possession at the very beginning of the tribulation up here. So this is the scene in heaven. He takes the title deed to the earth. And, you know, it's always a problem when you buy a house and the squatters won't leave. They have this problem all the time. I I, uh, have some friends in Arizona. They bought a house. Squatters wouldn't leave. Well, this is the story of how Jesus kicks out the squatters. This earth is his. The unrighteous, rebellious human beings will be kicked out. And this is the process of how that will happen. Now, he's not doing it in unkindness. He's not doing it unfairly. He is literally giving them every chance in the world to repent and to be allowed to go into his perfect world and perfect kingdom. And they will continue to reject it. We'll find out later that these great hailstones will fall upon them and they will still be saying, hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. And then it says that none of them would repent from their evil deeds. And it's just mind-boggling. They are so wicked, they are so evil that they do not want to have Jesus. They don't want his way. They want to do what they want. Satan has so deceived them, just like he deceived Adam and Eve. It's all it's the same lie as it was from back then. You don't need God, and God's trying to keep you from having all the fun. Man, it's the same lie, and they're going to fall for it. So now we get to, that's chapters 4 and 5. Now we get to the Great Tribulation in chapters 6 through 19. So the, the view changes from heaven, looking at what's going to heaven. He moves his, shifts his view down and looks down on earth. And in chapter 6 through 19, we have the description of God's last seven years of dealing with the nation of Israel, of hell on earth. And this is, uh, you'll also, if you study Daniel, this is Daniel's 70th week of prophecy from Daniel chapter 9. These are all very complex things that you can, you can study in your own time. We're going to see seals. We're going to see trumpets. We're going to see characters in a play. We're going to see bowls, and we're going to see dooms. Seven of each of them. And it's really, really interesting. Then we're going to get to the millennium and the new heaven and the new earth. But in chapter 6, it starts with the seven seals. So remember that book, that scroll that Jesus took that had the seven seals, that title deed to the earth. He begins to open it. And with each one of these things, God is taking back the authority that belongs to him. Jesus is taking the authority on the earth. And so he's taking back control of everything from 6.1 through 8.5. The first seal, the white horse comes out. You see a white horse and, and that's the Antichrist being revealed. He shows up a lot in the tribulation, but he does not show up until the tribulation starts. A lot of people are spending a lot of time right now thinking about who the Antichrist could be. But we're told clearly in the Bible that you're not going to know. If you're a believer right now, he literally cannot be revealed until you are taken up to heaven. But the first thing that happens is he is revealed. And he's an imitation. He rides on a white horse, just like we're going to see Jesus rides on a white horse. But he's just an imitation. He's a lie. He's not the true one who brings peace. He's actually coming to steal, kill, and destroy. The second seal is the red horse, and it brings warfare. 
It's funny. The Antichrist comes in and he's like, I bring peace and what follows him is warfare. Nice political promise there. The third seal is the black horse and it's the warf- it brings a famine. And the fourth seal is pale green and it brings death. So we have almost a quarter of the people of the earth are killed in this first just little chunk of the tribulation. So the whole world is in upheaval. The raptures just happened. There's been a, an invasion of Israel where uh, Russia has been destroyed. Basically, their army, army has been destroyed. And the whole world is in total chaos and upheaval. No one's going to care about the few measly Christians that just got raptured. It's going to be utter chaos. And it's going to be so primed and ready for a leader to say, everybody calm down. Follow me. And that's how the Antichrist rises to power. It's really interesting also, as you stop here at the fourth seal, that you go back to Matthew 24, and Jesus tells us what's going to happen in the end times, and his description exactly lines up with these beginning seals. Isn't that interesting? He, knew, he knows exactly how it's going to go. And I, I encourage you to study how these line up. The fifth seal, a bunch of martyrs are seen up in heaven. So we have people already being killed for Jesus at the beginning. In the sixth seal, you have cosmic craziness. And then we get to something called an interval in the book of Revelation, which is really important to understand too. Between the sixth and the seventh seal, between the sixth and the seventh trumpet, between the sixth and the seventh bowl, we always have these little intervals, a little aside, a little, okay, I'm telling a story, but I'm going to come over here. I'm gonna, I want you to remember this. So little vignettes, you could call them, of what's going on in the tribulation. And so the interval between the sixth and the seventh seal, we have the sealing of the 144,000. They're like a bunch of Jews that become believers, and they go out as witnesses throughout the whole earth. And then you have the blood-washed multitude, uh, which is another uh, group of people who have been killed. Because as you're getting into this, you might be thinking, well, does God just not care about anyone in the world anymore? And God wants to take you aside and say, now listen, I do care. In fact, I'm sending out 144,000 Jewish Billy Grahams to just witness, and they're going to be protected from everything, and they're not even going to be able to be killed. How amazing is that? They're going to be bold, and they're going to be telling people, believe in Jesus, believe in Jesus. This is his. This is the end time. He's repent, repent, repent. But people aren't going to listen. Well, some will, but they'll be killed for it. Then you get to the seventh seal. God goes to war now. He goes to war with trumpets. So you have the seals. He's now taking back his authority. Now you get to the trumpets. Trumpets in ancient Egypt were always what they would blow to go to war, to gather everyone to say, we are going to war against you. And that's what Jesus says here. I'm going to war against evil. You have the first trumpets where the plants are struck. The second trumpet, where the seas are struck. This starts with a meteor meteor striking the earth. It's described as a great mountain burning with fire falling into the sea. And as a result of this, you know, we also have the third trumpet, which is the waters are struck, uh, which is caused by a nuclear blast. We have fallout clearly described, and it's even called wormwood, which if you were reading a Ukrainian Bible right now, that wormwood is the word Chernobyl, which is our greatest nuclear disaster the world has ever seen. So we have a nuclear disaster. We have a a, a meteor. And all the the fallout from this is just going to be epic. And we're going to see it through the, the, the time of the tribulation. Then we have the fourth trumpet where the galaxy and the universe are struck. Basically, this is the atmospheric fallout from the meteor and nuclear disasters that have just happened. We have the fifth trumpet, which is locusts from the bottomless pit. So a a spiritual star or demon releases a bunch of terrible demons to to torment men. And it says that they will literally, it'll make them crazy where they want to die, but they won't be able to figure out how to die. It'll put them in like a paralytic state where they just can't move, but they'll want to die. They'll be in pain for five months, it says. Bad stuff. Then you have the sixth trumpet where a third of mankind is killed by a hundred million man army, probably from China. So all these things happening. Then we get to the interval between the sixth and the seventh trumpet, where you have a little book, and John is told to eat the little book. And it said it'll be sweet in his mouth, but bitter in his stomach. And this is explaining to us that prophecy, studying these end times events, it can be fun and it can be exciting. But there's, there's a part that just makes us uneasy as well. And that's the death of all the people. I mean, yes, Jesus is taking control, and it's going to be glorious. 
but it is also bitter in our stomach because so many people are going to die. And then we see the two witnesses. You got maybe Moses and Elijah or maybe Elijah and Enoch. We got a couple people who live in Jerusalem and they witness and they can call down fire and they can do all kinds of stuff. Again, telling people, trust Jesus. And what happens is the Antichrist goes to war against them and he finally kills them. They lie in the streets for three days. Then after three days, they're resurrected and they go up into heaven with everybody watching them. And it's crazy. So then we get to a little change. In the middle of the tribulation, we have the seven characters. These are seven, like, imagine if you would a play. And this is going to tell the whole kind of, all the characters that are really uh, acting in this play or, or in, in what's going on. And so you have the sun-clothed woman, who is Israel. You have the dragon, who is Satan, who starts persecuting Israel. Ever since God in the Garden of Eden told Satan that this woman would have a son and he would kill Satan, who is Jesus. Ever since the Garden of Eden, man, Satan has been wanting to kill all of men and then specifically he wanted to kill the Jews. He wanted to kill Israel. And so you have this played out in this, in this, um, in this drama up in the heavens, John sees it. And so you have this dragon going after the woman and the woman has a baby, a man-child named Jesus. So he ha- she has this baby. He... Uh, is there, and then you have the Archangel Michael, then you have the Jewish remnant talked about, which is the Jewish remnant, the Jews alive during the end times, and you get to the end times of this drama, and this drama is about Satan continuing to go after the nation of Israel. He's described, uh, then there's this guy uh, called the beast out of the sea, which is the Antichrist, and then we have a beast out of the earth, which is the false prophet. So the Antichrist kind of has this little crony, his little guy that always stands next to him, he's probably short and fat, but he, he just is always like, you should listen to the Antichrist. And so the Antichrist is a political leader, and this guy is like the church guy. He gives the church support in the end times to the Antichrist. It's a sad thing. And then you get another interval. Uh, and we have a couple of things seen there. We have the lamb on Mount Zion. We have the three messengers. Uh, and then we get to the seven bulls. So with these seven bulls from chapter 15 and 16, We have God cleansing, Jesus cleansing the earth with his wrath. Cleansing the filth of the earth. The filth of sin and unrighteousness. His wrath being poured out on unrepentant people. So you have the first bowl with sores, probably caused from nuclear radiation. You have the second bowl where the sea is turned to blood, which means just a third of the sea dies. All the fish and everything dies. The third bowl, the fresh water, all the drinking water is also contaminated. The fourth bowl, the sun gets hotter and starts burning people, or maybe the ozone goes away, so it's burning people. Uh, The fifth bowl, darkness and pain wherever the Antichrist rules. And the sixth bowl, a river is dried up to prepare the way for Armageddon, where where that 100 million man army is going to come fight with the Antichrist, and then they're all going to end up fighting with Jesus. Then you have another interval. It's very interesting where um, we have these three unclean spirits that, in the form of frogs, and they're about to tell people they're about to croak. And then the seventh bull happens, and it's the worst earthquake in the history of the world. All right? Then we get to the kind of the ending part of Revelation, and these are the seven dooms or the seven deaths or the seven endings to bad things. First, we have the Babylon that is uh, representative of the false church. The false, everyone who thinks they're part of the church, but they're really not. This is the ecclesiastical Babylon. This is the church that deceives people and says, you can do whatever you want. Because that's going to exist in the end times, in the tribulation. There's going to be a big church. And that church is going to be very wicked and evil. And it's going to be drawing people away from Jesus and his salvation and towards their own works. And that church is going to be destroyed. And chapter uh, 17 is about that. Chapter 18 is about the doom of the commercial Babylon. That is the world's economic system. Everything that this world does, all the sweatshops, all the wickedness that is our economic system is going to be destroyed. And that's described in verse 18. Then we have a little interval between the, the second and third dooms, and it's the hallelujah chorus where a bunch of angels are in heaven saying, heck yeah, Jesus is awesome, hashtag winner. And then you have the marriage feast of the Lamb, and then you have the Battle of Armageddon, 
where people, Jesus comes back with all the saints riding on horses. That's you and me. We've been up in heaven for seven years. We come back riding on horses, and Jesus actually appears in the sky, and he comes down and shows up in the Valley of Armageddon. And I've been there. I was there last November in Israel. I've seen this valley. It's a big valley. That's where the Antichrist armies are going to be. It's where this army from China and the, and the countries the east is going to be, this 100 million men. They're fighting for each other because the China people don't like the Antichrist people, and it's this big thing. But then they all see Jesus coming down with us, and guess what they do? They all turn their guns on Jesus. And I bet you can guess what happens. Jesus speaks one word, and they all die. And then you have the end, or the doom, of the beast and the false prophet. They get cast alive into the lake of fire. Then you have the end of the Antichrist nations that are alive at the end. The anti-Christian, anti-Jesus nations. All the nations that were just evil. They're all killed. Then you have this interval between the fourth and fifth dooms, where it describes for us those thousand years where Satan is bound, and the thousand years Jesus, Jesus is ruling a perfect world here on this earth. And then we have that time ending, and you have the first resurrection. And you have the millennium, or sorry, then you have the, the first resurrection is before the millennium. And then you have the thousand years, and then you have the Satan loose and a final rebellion. And then you have uh, the doom of Gog and Magog, the doom of Sa Satan. He himself is cast into the lake of fire. Then you have the doom of the wicked dead. Okay, so this is when all the people who haven't believed in Jesus throughout all of time both in now, in the future, and in the past. They're all resurrected this time. They're taken up to heaven. And this is called the great white throne judgment. And at this judgment, everyone who appears at that judgment is being judged for their works. And this isn't a good thing. Because everyone who is judged by their works is not good enough to go to heaven. Every single person who will be judged on that day will be sent to the lake of fire. And it's sad. It's really sad. But you and me, we're not going to be at that judgment. And there's a really important reason why that we have to understand. Because we have works too. I have some works. A lot of them are bad. A lot of my works are bad. So shouldn't I, by rights, I should be at that judgment. I should be sent to hell. But God judged works another place too. He judged works on the cross, on Jesus. And everyone who has chosen to accept Jesus as their Savior, their works were judged on the cross. And so we have no reason to appear at the great white throne judgment because our works were judged at the cross. You and I are totally innocent, totally gloriously forgiven. And we've already been in heaven for seven years. We already have been cleansed our works, there's a previous judgment for just our good works, just for rewards for the good things you did for Jesus. That's the only judgment you and I have to look forward to. But this great white throat judgment, if you show up there, it's not good. It's not a good day for you. We don't want that. Because everyone there shows, goes to the lake of fire. And then we get to the last two chapters, which is amazing because we see seven new things seven new things. Number one, the new heaven, one that Satan has never been to, never been defiled by his wicked presence. The new earth, one that has never seen death or sorrow. The new city, one that has never been devastated by the effects of sin and selfishness. And the new nations, everyone is still individual, but they're all united under Jesus and with Jesus. We have a new river, Complete and total access to the life source of Jesus. Awesome. Then we have a new tree of life. Eternal life. Never-ending joy and an always growing existence. Always producing new fruit, it says. Never getting old. That's what heaven is. That's what the new heaven is. And then finally, a new light where everything will be seen how it truly is forever. There will never be a misunderstanding. There will never be a confusion again. Only light and peace in Jesus Christ. Because it says he is that light. Awesome stuff. Awesome stuff. Then we get, at the very end of Revelation, we get to the, the final sermon that Jesus preaches to the church. So he kind of brings the focus back to us. 
All right, so now we know how everything's going to end, how the story goes. He brings it back to us and he says, now you guys, I want you to listen up here. Listen up. We'll start, we'll start in verse 12. It says, Jesus testifies to the churches is what my Bible says this, this is. This is his final sermon. He says, behold, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. He's like, I've been keeping track. Your life matters. I got a list and I've been checking it twice. But he says, I'm not looking for who's naughty and nice. <laughs> I'm coming back. My reward is with me. Your life matters. And then he says, I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. All of this is about, if you're confused about any bit, here's all you have to know. I am what it's all about. Alpha and omega is the beginning and the last letter in Greek. That means I'm what it needs to start about and I'm what it needs to end about. If your day doesn't end with the alpha and omega or Jesus on your mind at the beginning, Jesus on your mind at the end, then you're missing out on what life is supposed to be. He says, nothing else matters besides me. I'm the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. This is all about me, he says. Verse 14, blessed are those who do his commandments that, that they may have the right to the tree of life. See, remember that tree that Adam and Eve couldn't eat from, that God kicked them out of the garden and put an angel with a flaming sword going everywhere just to keep them out? He had to kick them out of the garden so they wouldn't get to it. Well, if you do my commandments and you arrive with me in heaven, it's all yours. That life, that what I have for you. You got yourself kicked out. I'm going to give it back to you. Your works got you kicked out of what God had for you. But my works, Jesus says, are going to bring it back. I'm bringing back the tree. Abide in me. Abide in my word. This commandments thing can be confusing for some people. Like, do his commandments. That means I got to keep all the rules right all the time. Oh my gosh, I'm never going to do that. But we learned last week, didn't we? that keeping his commandments is abiding with him, abiding in his word, loving God, and that will produce love for other people. Those are the things that God has for us. That's keeping his commands. He says, and maybe enter through the gates of the city. You'll be a real citizen of heaven. He says, a real citizen, this is your home. You don't have to sneak in underground or you don't have to try to climb the walls. You'll just be able to come right in through the gates, he says. You are a citizen. This is yours. And I'm coming quickly to give it to you. Verse 15. But outside are dogs and sorcerers, sexually immoral, murderers, and idolaters, and whoever loves and practices a lie. He says, in my heaven, no fakers are allowed. No one who is just messing around with God gets in. Where church is just a playground. Church is just, I'm just trying to make God happy enough with me. I'm just trying to put in my time so that when the end comes, I'll just sneak in. Or, but do I love Jesus with all my heart? No. Is Jesus the first thing in my mind and the last, the Alpha and the Omega? No. And I can't answer that for you. That's, that should be convicting in your heart if that's not where you really are with Jesus. Do you love him? If you're not sincerely loving Jesus, you're not getting in. It's important to know. Jesus, in his last sermon, tells us it's important to know. Verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel and testified to you these things in the churches. Jesus gave us this book to read in church. Even though it's crazy. Even though it's weird. Even though it's hard to understand, maybe at the beginning. Even though it's not a hard book to understand. He gave it for us to read in church. It's his idea to give it to us this way, so it's got to be smart somehow. It was his idea. He says, I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. What this means, he says, I am the answer to every prophecy. Every promise is fulfilled in me. That root and that offspring of David, all that has to go with promises. God saying, I'm going to make things right, Israel. I'm going to come to you. I'm going to bring a salvation. I'm going to take care of it. And those who died in faith got it. He says, every promise will be fulfilled, and it's me. I am the fulfillment of every promise. And I'm the bright and morning star, meaning I am totally amazing and glorious. Just wait till you get a load of me. 
I love when the Joker said that in the old Batman. You remember that? Wait till they get a load of me. That's what Jesus is saying here. You're going to freak out. I'm so awesome. It'll be worth it. All that you had to suffer in this world, it's going to be worth it. In verse 17, the spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. And let him who thirsts, come. Whoever desires, let him take of the water of life freely. Everyone who wants Jesus to come, this is going to be awesome. The Spirit is wanting Jesus to come. The Spirit is tired of everything going on in the world. The Spirit is saying, Jesus, come back. The the bride is saying, Jesus, come back. His church, us, I know in my heart, this week, I have prayed so many times for Jesus just to come back. I want him to come back. This world is tough, and there's so much wickedness, I feel like we can't even, we can't fix it because we can't. It's tough, and I want him to come back. I want him to fix everything. I want it. He says, every dry soul can be satisfied by him. Everyone. He says, for free. Let whoever thirsts come and drink of the water of life freely. Well, Jesus told us, didn't he, in in the beginning of John, who is the water of life? Who is that fountain of life? It's himself. He says, you can drink me. You can have me if you ask me to come. You can have me. That's what it's about. So what does Jesus say? In verse 20, the last verse we'll read, he says, He who testifies these things says, Surely I am coming quickly. Even so, amen, even so, come, Lord Jesus. If you are longing for Jesus to show up in your life today, maybe you need a Savior. Maybe you know if you died right now, you would go to hell because you have sin that you're guilty of. And you know that that sin has not been paid for. Maybe you need a Savior. Maybe you need Jesus to show up and to come to you right now to wash you clean of that sin. Ask him, and he'll come. Maybe you need a fountain. Maybe you have been running dry, running on empty, your marriage is just like this, and you guys are fighting, or your relationships have just struggled, and you don't have that, that love flowing up and bubbling out of you. You need him to be your fountain. Ask him, and he will come. Do you need something just amazing or awesome in your life? you need something just undescribable? Ask him, and he'll come. Maybe you just need something fruitful. Ask him, and he'll come. Maybe you just need something real. You see, it seems like everything is fake. Maybe you need something alive, like there's just deadness inside of you, and you don't know where to come from, you don't know how to fix it. Just ask Jesus, and he will come. Ask him to come into your life. He responds to being asked. He will not force himself on you. He will not force you to take his love, his forgiveness, his fountain, his real-lifeness, glory, whatever that is. He won't force it on you. You've got to ask him. He's going to show up anyways. He's going to be revealed, just like this book says. And I would rather him show up as my savior and my fountain rather than my conqueror. I'd rather him show up for me as the joy of my heart rather than someone I am terrified of. Wouldn't you? Yes. Well, let's pray. We did the whole book of Revelation. Woo! It's crazy how much God can, can put into one book. You know, and obviously I, I, I used a fire hose of knowledge, just, just sprayed it all over you, all right? And I don't expect you, to, we're not going to have a quiz. We're not going to have a pop quiz, hotshot. We are, this was just to, to whet your appetite for Jesus to come back. 
And I don't know why I felt the Lord's Spirit moving us to be ready for him to come back. But I think we need to be ready for him to come back. And I don't think all of us in here are ready. I think maybe there's some of us that need to do some business with God right now. And some of us need to really ask him some things. Some of us maybe have been trying to please him, and it's, it's not working out. You know that it's, you're not right with him. You can be right right now by faith in Jesus Christ. Let's all stand up. And I want to take a few minutes to pray. Because I just preached about asking him to come, and so we are now going to ask him to come. Jesus, we ask that you would um, come back soon. Lord, the Spirit is yearning inside us to, to have all of this united and have all of this flesh that we still are partaking of and all these struggles that we're still struggling with, all of it to be done. The Spirit is longing for there to be this resolution. And Lord, we ask that you would come back to fix this world. Jesus, we ask that you would come into our marriages, not just in this world, but into our marriages, God. We need you so much. We need husbands who will love their wives unconditionally and wives who will honor their husbands. God, we need you so much. Our marriages are to be the greatest picture the world has ever seen of your love, Jesus. And for, for many of us, that is not the reality. God, we need you so much. We ask for you to come into our marriages and into our families, God, our children. Lord, we need to be godly parents who are leading them the right way. We need to be not parents who, who react to our kids, but who respond to them. Not just react in anger to discipline them, but respond in godly reverence and discipline. Lord, because our children, if they don't turn to you, are going to die. And we want them to be saved. Lord, we need you to come into our families. We need you so much, Jesus, to come into our jobs where we work in this world and we, we have bosses and we have employees and God, it, it is to be also a picture of your love and, and we could see your grace and we want to see that, Lord. And some of our bosses are horrible. Some of them are wicked. And Lord God, I pray we would be a witness of love, patience, kindness to them. And Lord, we ask that you would come into our church because this is your church. We are your people. And God, we are not here trying to figure out how to save the whole city. We ask you to come. We are here to hang out with you, to, be, to fellowship with you, and to be just growing in love with you. Lord, make us a new people who are just living for your glory every day. Lord, we just pray that the Bible would be alive in our hearts. God, that the book of Revelation may have been just a mystery to us. God, I pray now we would see it as your treatise of love into, to us, your declaration of what you're going to do to get us back to where we should be in heaven. God, we accept what you have for us in our life. And we, we love you. We recognize the spiritual war all around us. And we pray you'd help us to abide in you. And pray for our brothers and sisters who are really struggling. God, we pray that you would help us to be faithful witnesses. And you would use us to create a revival in this city. Lord, a revival of believers who may have just have been dry and have not been drinking of that fountain springing up into everlasting life. God, people who have not been in your word. Maybe the whole Bible to them is a big mystery, a big confusing thing. And Lord, I just pray that that would be changed by our witness. Lord, I pray the Bible would be to us every morning our bread and our breath. God, we need you so much. 
We thank you so much for the, the family that we have gathered here, and Lord, how, how you have created love in us and encouragement. And God, lastly, we just give opportunity for anyone who would want to turn to you today, who would want to be cleansed from their sin today. If there's anyone today that you know that you know that you know that you know that God is calling you to repent of your life and, and your sin, and he's calling you to receive his son as a, as a substitute for that sin. He doesn't want you to try to work it out. He doesn't want you to try to earn this forgiveness. He just is holding it out to you and saying, please, take it. Please, repent. Please, trust what my son did. It's the only way. It is the only way for you to be saved. If that's you today, then pray. Pray with me and say, Jesus, save me. Jesus, save me. You died on the cross for me, so save me. Give me your spirit, please. Give me everything that I've needed and wanted for all these years, but I've tried to do it on my own. Save me, Lord. I believe that you are God and that you gave yourself for my sin. And I receive your forgiveness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.